I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, if you will, please. We've been teaching a uh, series on authority for the last several weeks, and this morning I want to continue that series, but maybe approach it from a little different standpoint. Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends the 70 out, and he gives them specific instruction. Verse 17, it says, And the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Now, if you go back and you look in, earlier in the, uh, the 10th chapter, you'll find out that casting out devils was not mentioned in the things that Jesus told them to do. And so they found out, and we'll make this point again as we go, they found out the boundaries of the authority that they had, the extent to which the authority in the name of Jesus reached by experience. So they said, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us in your name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Now, he's not talking about when you use the name of Jesus, Satan fell. He's talking about, I beheld Satan fall before the earth was ever formed. Before the Genesis account of creation, Satan fell. In other words, he's saying, what you don't understand is Satan is already defeated. That's what he's trying to explain to the disciples. He's saying the name of Jesus works because Satan is a defeated foe. Now, folks, he's even more defeated now because of Jesus going to the cross and being raised from the dead than he was at the time Jesus said this. But even then, he was a defeated foe. He was a rebel holder of authority here on the earth because he had deceived Adam and Eve to get it, or deceived Eve. Adam went along with it. But even then, he was a defeated foe, even more so now because Jesus has stripped him of the keys of hell and death. So he said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Verse 19, behold, I give unto you power. If you notice, and we say this every time, but it's important for you to recognize the word power is in this verse twice. But they're two different Greek words. The first time the word power is used, it's the word authority. It means delegated power. The second time the word power is used, it means ability. So he's literally saying, behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power, all the ability of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nothing shall by any means hurt you. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now turn with me over to Matthew chapter 8. I want to approach, uh, as I said, uh, the, the subject of authority from a little different standpoint, a little bit different angle this morning. I want to show you the relationship between authority and faith. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is in the early days, his first year of his, uh, his ministry here on the earth. We'll start reading in verse 5. It says, And Jesus, when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant lies at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said, I will come and heal him. This is, um, I don't have any doubt that this is a proper and accurate translation, but in the original Greek, it literally says it this way. It says, having come, I will heal him. Now, that expands it a little bit more. Here, the way the King James translates, it's Jesus saying, I'll come to your house and heal him. And that's certainly what he means. But it goes further in the context of what Jesus spoke for all of mankind. He said, having come from heaven, I will heal. So then the centurion answers him and says, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority. Everybody notice the word authority. He said, for I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. The centurion was responsible for a hundred soldiers. That's what the, the name centurion means. It means leader of a hundred. 
So he'd had a hundred soldiers under him. And he said, I have soldiers under me. And I say to this man, in other words, one of the soldiers go and he goes and do another come and he comes. And to my servant, and he do this and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Notice the relationship between great faith and authority. The man is identifying that he understands what Jesus, or, or that, well, the man exemplifies. He shows us that he has what Jesus says is great faith. How did he get it? Because he understood authority. His understanding of authority was the key element to having great faith. Folks, nobody is ever going to have great faith. Nobody is ever going to be great in faith in any context whatsoever unless they understand authority. Jesus winds up saying in verse 13, he says to the centurion, Go your way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in that selfsame hour. Now, notice this uh, this connection, this relationship between authority and faith. The key to great faith is knowing authority. The key to authority is knowing the extent or the limits or how far your authority goes. Notice the centurion did not say, I have soldiers under me so I can go order every general in the Roman army around to do what I tell him to do. Now, why didn't he say that? Because that's not where his authority goes. His authority goes to those or extends to those that are under his authority. He mentions the soldiers that are under him and he mentions the servants that he has. He has authority over the certain group of soldiers and the certain servants. And he says to them, do something, and they do it because they're under his authority. Now, Jesus, or the centurion, rather, recognizes very simply, and this is what he's communicating to Jesus when he says, I understand authority. Here's how it works in my household. Here's how it works in my job. He's saying, I know you have authority over sickness, so all you have to do is speak the word. He recognized that Jesus, how did he recognize that? Well, he had to be from what he heard Jesus preach or heard about Jesus and the fame that had spread abroad about his ministry. He recognized that Jesus had authority over sickness. Folks, he still does. He still does. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, Jesus was here on the earth in those days. And since Jesus had authority and all they had to do is go to Jesus and he would either lay hands on people or he would come to their house or in this case, he'd just speak the word. And it worked that way. Well, Jesus is not here on the earth, but his name is. And Jesus said his name equals him. He said, whatever you call for or require in my name, that will I do. He's saying the name equals the man. The name equals the man. You know why the name of Jesus is not used in the body of Christ in the way that it should be, in the way that Jesus said that it would be? Because the church doesn't understand authority. Because the church does not understand authority. Now, remember where we started this morning a few moments ago in Luke chapter 10. The 70 were commissioned to preach the word. Whatever house you enter into, stay there. If it's a good house, if it's worthy of your peace, let your peace remain upon it. He said, uh, uh, heal the sick that are therein and say to them, the kingdom of God has come unto you. He gives them a little bit more information. Don't take anything with you. Live off of the, the goodwill of the people that you go to and so forth. But that's the instruction that he gives them. Preach the word and heal the sick. Then they come back in verse 17 and they said, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us in your name. How'd they know? How'd they find that out? Folks, as I mentioned before, in many cases, we find out the extent of our authority through use and exercise of it. But now that creates a dilemma for us. 
Because the name of Jesus won't work unless you believe in it. So how do you believe in it if you don't know how far it goes? Jesus responds and says to the disciples, Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notice he did not say, You've got authority to go cast the devil out of the earth. Folks, here's the issue. When it comes to the extent of our authority, you... Me, mankind as a whole, any individual Christian has complete authority in their own life. But you've got limited authority in others. When it comes to relationship with other people and things that pertain to other people and their will, your authority is limited. But in your life, you have absolute and complete authority. Absolute and complete authority. That's what's so damnable, what's so heretical, what's so demonic about this idea that everything is in the hands of God. That's what is so dangerous about this sovereignty of God doctrine as it's used in the body of Christ today. Because what that does is it causes the uninformed. It causes the unlearned. Those who do not know the truth of the word and the authority that Jesus has given us, it causes those people to relinquish their authority to whatever happens and Satan is the God of this world working things to happen. So whether they know it or not, they can take a real religious and a real humble attitude, well, Lord, I'll just accept anything you've got and they're taking stuff that's not from God because they're relinquishing their authority. You have complete and total authority in your life. Whether you get saved or not, it's up to you. Whether you get healed or not, is up to you. Whether you prosper or not in this life is up to you, even though Jesus paid for all three of them because you're the one that has authority. You're the one that has authority. Now, we're going to talk about a lot of different things here related to... Um, well, i tell you what. Let's, let's start off with Paul. Turn with me over to Philippians chapter 1. There's a lot of examples that we can use. There's a lot of things that we'll talk about and there's no way we can get finished. But I want you to notice something in Philippians chapter 1. Paul is writing to the church. Um, let's start reading in verse 19. Paul said, for I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. Now, he's talking about the persecution. He's talking about things that have come against him. He's talking about the way people are responding to this. But notice he says, my expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. That sets the stage. That tells us the context of the next few verses. He's talking about whether he lives or whether he dies. He says, to me, the only thing that matters is whether Jesus is magnified. That's my ultimate goal, is that Jesus be magnified whether I live or whether I die. Now, the death he's talking about has got to be physical death. Because he's spiritually alive, he can't die spiritually now. He's made Jesus the Lord of his life, right? So he's talking about whether I live in the flesh or whether I die in the flesh, my expectation and my hope is that Jesus will be magnified. Now, if we stop reading right there, we'd say, well, yeah, Lord, glorify yourself in my life or whether in my death or, or whatever. Lord, I just hope people see you in me. But then notice what Paul goes on to say. 
knowing that he has an expectation and a hope that Jesus will be magnified whether he lives or whether he dies, then he says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Here's my attitude toward living and dying. If I live, it's to magnify Jesus. It's to show Jesus' life, Jesus' example, and Jesus' love here in this earth. If I die, I'm better off. Well, from a, uh, from a natural standpoint, that would certainly be true. Now, think about that from a spiritual standpoint. He's not more saved once he gets to heaven than he is here on the earth. He's not going to know God better when he gets to heaven than he knows him here on the earth. Now, he'll be able to see without the veil of flesh, that's for sure. And so there is great gain in heaven. But it's not like he dies and then gains eternal life. He's got that now. He's the one that's telling us that he's got that now. So the gain that he's talking about is simply to loose the bonds of this flesh. Right? But it's a hope. His expectation is still the same. Jesus if he lives. Jesus if he dies. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, we see he's talking about natural life. If I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I what not. Another translation says, I haven't yet decided what I'm going to choose. Choose? He's talking about living or dying. And he's talking about choice? Choose? Where's the choice? I thought the Bible says it's appointed unto man to die. It's appointed unto every man to die, and after that, the resurrection. Where's the choice? See, people come through things like what uh, Solomon said in in, uh, Ecclesiastes. It's appointed unto man to die. There's a time for everything, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to live, whatever, all the other times, whatever. Solomon knew some things, but by then he had kind of missed some of the mark. But people take things like that out of context. They say, okay, you've got a set time to die. Well, then where's Paul's choice? Choose what I shall choose I don't know yet. Choose? Seriously? Choose? Shouldn't he be praying? Shouldn't he be saying, I've prayed and God hadn't showed me yet when my time to go is? But that's not what he says. Now, you can read it that way if you want to, but that's not what he's saying. And a lot of Christians do read it that way because they want to. Because they'd rather think that God's in control and man doesn't have authority. Okay. My only response to that is to quote Scripture. Let the ignorant be ignorant still. Proverbs says that. And some people want it that way. Okay. But that's not what he says. He said, but what I shall choose, I what not. I don't know yet. I haven't completely decided. For, verse 23, I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart. Here's my dilemma. I have a desire to depart. I want to get out of here. That's what Paul's saying. Because to die is gain. I want to get out of here. I've paid my dues. I've done my job. I'm in a straight betwixt two. I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. He didn't say just better. Now, he's not talking about just gain. He's saying it's far better. How does he know? Because he's the one that was caught up into the third heaven and saw. He's gotten a glimpse. Boy, don't you know that'd be tough to stay here once you've seen that? So he said, I'm in a straight. I've got a dilemma. I'm in a straight betwixt two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But, verse 24, nevertheless, to abide in the flesh 
is more needful for you. Better for me if I go. Better for you if I stay. Now, folks, I would submit that if, if, if in the case of most people in that position, they're not in a straight betwixt two. Most people would take the position, it's better for me to go. You guys do the best you can. You're on your own. I've given you everything I've got. It's not what he says. He says, I've got a desire to be with Christ, which is far better, but it's better for you if I stay here. Because if I stay here, I can continue to teach. I can continue to help you. I can continue to encourage you and tell you things that you don't know about God yet. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of the faith. In other words, he's saying, I say it's a dilemma, and it is a real hard choice for me to make, but I know what I've got to do. I've got to stay here for your good. Got to stay here for your good. Now turn with me over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul writing the letter to Timothy. This is the last letter that he wrote. Notice what he says. He's charging Timothy to continue in the ministry that God has for him. He says, uh, verse 3, the time will come when people will not endure sound doctrines, but after their own lusts or desires shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. In other words, they'll look for people to tell them what they want to hear. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into fables. Verse 5, but watch thou in all things. Endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of your ministry. For, verse 6, I am now ready to be offered. Now I'm ready to go. When he wrote the Philippians, to the Philippians, he wasn't ready to go. He knew it was better. He wanted to go, but he knew it was better for him to stay. And so he made his choice to stay. He made his choice to stay. He made his choice to stay. Folks, you need to understand, if the, if the Bible told us, if it was telling us, as so many people do think and so many people will tell you, that there is a set time, that God has a set moment in time for you to die, then why would the Bible tell you there are things you can do that will shorten your life and things you can do that will lengthen your life? If you had a set time to go, there would be no lengthening of your life. There would be no shortening of your life. God would have that set, it would be written in stone, and you'd go when it's your time. Isn't that right? I mean, isn't that the sovereignty of God doctrine? Yeah, God's in charge of everything. He rules everything. Seriously. Well, then I guess those scriptures about things you can do to lengthen your life, that's just, what, filler? Did God forget what he said the other thing about having a set time to go? Did he make a mistake? No. Now Paul says he's ready. For now I'm ready to be offered. And the time of my departure is at hand. What departure is he talking about? He's talking about to be with Christ. Depart and be with Christ, which is far better. He says the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Where? In heaven. I'm going to get my reward, Paul says. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not only to me, but unto all them that also love is appearing. 
how in the world could we say, and I know some people are going to take this and they're going to run off and they're going to say, oh, Pastor Mike says we don't ever have to die. No, I didn't say that at all. I said you can choose when you go. It is appointed unto man once to die. So you're going to die. Some people will say, I like that Paul. He didn't believe in dying. Well, sure he did. He just decided when it would be. How could anybody claim that man has the right, has the authority to choose when he's going to go? Well, think back to what we just started off with, what Jesus told the disciples. Luke 10, 19. Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Well, if nothing shall by any means hurt you, then that means you're not going to die by accident. And if you've got authority over all the power of the devil, physical death is a result of sin in the world. God made Adam and Eve not for the purpose of dying. They would never die and wouldn't have died except that they allowed sin to enter in. So sin, therefore, is of who? I'm sorry, death, therefore, is of who? The devil. Paul said, writing to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 34, is that right? Uh, I'm sorry, it's not chapter 5, it's chapter 15. He said, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, physical death. Spiritual death's already been done away with through belief in Jesus. But physical death is still in, in operation. So Paul certainly believed in dying. He just believed in picking your time to go. I'm trying to make this point, and I'm taking it to an extreme. I'm trying to make the point that you have absolute authority in your life. There's no blame in God. There's no blame in the devil. There's no blame in your mama or your daddy or your pastor or your pastor or anybody else. You have authority. You have ultimate and complete authority in your life. The devil can't stop you from getting saved if you choose to be saved. The devil can't stop you from being healed if you choose to receive it. The devil can't stop you from prospering if you walk in it. Why? Because Jesus paid for all three of those things. You can have all three of those things according to Isaiah 53, 5. You can have all three of those things in the name of Jesus. And the devil can't do anything to stop you. Now, he can resist you. He can try to talk you out of it. But you're the one with authority, not him. He doesn't decide, you decide. Now, man has complete authority in his own life, but he has limited authority outside of that which pertains to him and him alone. Paul, the same guy that's choosing, picking and choosing when to go, couldn't stop the persecution coming against him. He tried. That's what Paul's thorn in the flesh is all about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan which he identifies as persecution. The Jews are stirring up trouble. Most of the time it's the Jews. Sometimes it was others, but mostly it was the Jews stirring up trouble against him every town he goes to. Every place he goes to preach the name of Jesus, the devil is waiting for him, trying to get him either stoned, beaten, thrown in jail, something. And he couldn't stop it. He prayed three times, Lord, let this thing be taken from me. He's praying to God to take away something the devil gave him. No wonder God can't answer that prayer. If God had given him the persecution, he could have stopped the persecution. But God didn't give it to him. So he's praying. He's extending the limits of his authority to see how far they go. And Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. 
Basically, it's the Lord saying, Paul, I'm not behind the persecution, but I told you all along, those that live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I can't stop the persecution, but everything the devil does to try to stop you, I can show the power of God to be greater than that. That's why when he was thrown in jail, jail, the prison doors opened. That's why when he was stoned in Acts chapter 14, he was raised from the dead. How? Because you have authority over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Paul must not have been ready to go when he was stoned in Acts chapter 14. We clearly see that he's making his choice later in his life. Well, he must have already made that choice earlier in his life then. We read that. Why don't you turn with me to Acts chapter 14? Let me point this out to you. Acts chapter 14. I tell you what, back to chapter 13. Let's look at the, the ministry of Paul as it begins. Acts chapter 13 tells us, the first part of the chapter tells us about when God separated him and Barnabas for the ministry to the Gentiles as, an apostle, as apostles to the Gentiles. Tells us one of the first places that he goes, verse 6, they, when they had gone through the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the sorcerer, for so his name is by interpretation, withstood them. Here's the devil working through somebody to stop the ministry that God has given them. They withstood them. He withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, O, thou, o full of all subtlety and mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Then the deputy, when he saw what it was done, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. Now, folks, please understand, God did not make this man blind. This is not sickness. This is not disease. This is a demonstration. Here's Paul using the authority in the name of Jesus to show that the power of the name of Jesus is greater than the power that the sorcerer was using, the demonic power that the sorcerer was operating under. It's Paul making a demonstration. It's the same thing as Pharaoh, uh, uh, Moses in Pharaoh's court, where he takes the, the, the stick and throws it down and it becomes a serpent. Magicians do the same thing, but Moses' serpent swallows up theirs. It's a display that the power of God is greater than the power of the devil. It is not sickness and disease. And notice it was temporary says, you'll not see the sun for a season. And so he was led around by the hand for a short period of time. However short, I don't know how long. I don't know how long Paul meant when he said season. But it was a short period of time, long enough for the deputy of the, of the country, Sergius Paulus, to see that the power of God was greater than the power of the sorcerer. The satanic power that the, 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 the Elamus was operating under. Paul knew something about authority even starting off. You know, it's a, it's a funny thing. I'm very conscious of where my authority ends as a believer and where my authority starts as a pastor. Very conscious of that. There are things that I have prayed for trying to make happen on my own, trying to take authority over it, and the answer is no. But then I'll step over into the pastor's position and say, now, Lord, not for me, but for the sake of the church. I've got complete authority there. I'm very conscious of that. 
We need to make the distinction. See, we look at the Old Testament. We look at Moses' part in the Red Sea. We say, oh, there's the believer's authority. No, it's not. There's Moses as the leader of the children of Israel exercising his authority as the leader. And he didn't even know that. God's the one who had to tell him. Moses, quit crying out to me about this problem. You stretch your rod out and, and part the sea. That's where Moses figured out, wait a minute, this leader of the children of Israel stuff is with power. This wasn't just about plagues and, and, and making Pharaoh let him go. There's real power here. And God had to show him. God had to teach him how this works. Joshua got the information from God. God told Joshua, nobody will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. So what does Joshua do? He gets in a battle and starts running out of daylight and says, son, stop. And the sun stops. Why? Because he has a, the believer's authority is we can rule the world? No, because as the leader of the children of Israel, he could do and command that which was necessary for the well-being of the people that he was given. That's what I mean. I know a very distinct difference between my authority as a believer and my authority as a pastor. I get some people in the church coming to me saying, Pastor Mike, we need to pray about this. And the, the, the thing they want me to pray about has nothing to do with our church. I have only a believer's authority to agree. You give me something to pray about that pertains to the people in my church, people that God's given me. Let me have that one. Acts chapter 14. Persecution is being stirred up against Paul in all the cities that he's going through. Acts chapter 14, it tells us that he's, uh, he's threatened in one place, so they flee to another place. Verse 6, they were aware of the, the, the uh, intent to stone them. And so they fled into Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and the region that lies round about. By the way, that's Galatians, the, city, the region of Galatia. And there they preached the gospel. And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet, and he leaped and walked. Here's Paul exercising authority over sickness. But he has to have the man's faith to do it. See, when you start talking about authority, people get these wild-eyed looks. Oh, we can do what Moses did. We can do what Joshua did. We can do what Elijah and Elisha did. We can do all those things. As the leader of the children of Israel, sure you could, but you're not. Now, if the Bible had given us this story where Paul just goes in and says to the crippled man, behold the power of the Lord, and, ra and raises him up and heals him, then that would have been the authority that he had as an apostle fulfilling the ministry that God had given him to do. But even in that context, he had to have the man's faith to get the results. That's why the Bible says in James 5, 14, let them that are sick call for the elders of the church. Even though I'm the pastor of the church and there may be people in my church that are sick, I can't just automatically heal them on my authority or on my faith. I've got to have them working with me. That's an amazing thing. I go overseas. I go to places like Peru and I get blind eyes opened. I get people getting out of wheelchairs. I come home and I have to teach you to exercise your faith. Why? Because you're supposed to know more. I get in places where people don't know more. I get in places where God can use me in a greater way and, and the power of God operate in a greater way. That will work 
over and over and over again. But I get into a place where you've heard it taught and heard it taught. God expects you to believe. Now, folks, we get just as much miraculous results here as you, as you can get overseas. They're just not spectacular results. Two weeks ago, uh, Kelly, Shippies, dad had a heart attack. His pacemaker stopped just right before church. So they, there were people in the family that started praying. They got information to us. We started praying too. We just prayed and claimed God, the, claimed healing for him, recovery for him. Well, by the time we got to praying, things stabilized. Things stopped. He had already gotten to the doctor or to, got to the emergency room. They told him that there was going to be damage to his heart. There was going to be damage to his kidneys. The, the, all the signs showed that this damage had already occurred because of the time and, and whatever else was involved. There turned out to be no damage whatsoever. Now, was that my authority as the pastor? No. It was my authority as a believer added to the family's authority already exercising their faith that working together, here's the prayer of faith, here's the prayer of agreement that brings about supernatural results. And folks, whether you know it or not, that's what James 5.14 is all about. It's two people praying together. The sick that believe in the elders of the church praying for them and the elders that believe in the prayer of faith that brings about supernatural results. Had a gentleman tell me this last week, just last Sunday morning. He said he woke up and the Lord said, go to church. I don't know why God would have to tell him to go to church, but he did. He said he injured his shoulder. He said just lifting his shoulder up just that high would cause him all kinds of pain. He said he'd been that way for months. He said he believed God. He claimed his healing, done all kinds of things. But he came to church last Sunday morning. We taught on authority. At the end of the service, you may remember if you were here, we had people make declarations. We had them exercise their authority through their words. He said, I exercised my authority. He said, I prayed. It wasn't anything different than I'd ever done before. But I prayed. All of a sudden, my shoulder, pain, the shoulder was gone. He said, I started throwing my shoulder all around. Didn't, haven't had any pain in it since. Now, what made the difference? He obeyed what God told him to do. He got in a position where he could hear about authority and therefore act on it. It added to the faith that he had already exercised. A gentleman told me a story just this morning, just before church. His daughter, missionary to Africa. She was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Had a tumor the size of an apple, if I remember what he said correctly. He brought her to healing school several times. We prayed for her. We ministered the word to her. She got a hold of other things too. She was listening to, to the truth of the word. They were making declarations. He, gets, he told me that he got a, a list of scriptures. And every day he would put his hand on those scriptures and he'd say, Father, this is your promise to my daughter. His daughter didn't even know as much about faith as he did, as I understand it. Because she'd say, what if my faith is not enough? If I, if I don't get it, does that mean my faith's not enough? And he said, honey, my faith will get you through on this. What's he doing? He's exercising authority as a father. Even though his daughter's grown. Now, if, if she was not believing, if she was refusing to believe, if she's thinking, well, maybe God's behind this somewhere or another, then it wouldn't have worked. But he got her in agreement with him. That tumor disappeared. Now, folks, we read stories in the Bible, and it looks like everything's an instant result, and sometimes they are. And we think, wow, why don't things happen like that? Well, folks, I just gave you three examples of things that do happen like that. They just happened in the last two weeks. Yeah, people say, well, I don't know why it doesn't work the way it used to. Once again, let the ignorant be ignorant still.
Folks, you need to realize God did not put signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of healings in the body of Christ for the body of Christ to entertain herself. God gave you the word to get miraculous results. And the best way to get those miraculous results is you exercising your authority based on the word because then you know it's you and God together. You don't have to think, oh, well, is Pastor Mike going to be available next time I need him? Jesus is always available when you need him. That's why faith is always the better way. That's why faith is so ill-spoken of throughout the body of Christ. It's the devil trying to stop God's plan from working. Okay, Acts 14. It tells us after the man was healed, the crippled man was healed. Boy, everybody thought Paul and Barnabas were really something. They start calling them gods themselves. And they have to kind of resist that. They have to, to, to um, pull back from that. And it says, uh, verse 19, And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium. That's the places they just ran away from because they were going to stone them there. Now they've come to the other city following them. There came certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people and having stoned Paul. Everybody say stoned Paul. Having stoned Paul. Now, folks, what do you think the intent of stoning Paul was about? Man, we're going to teach him a lesson. We're going to hit him in the legs with these stones. We're going to show him. No, they want to stone him. They're Jews. Nobody knows more about stoning than the Jews. They invented it. They look for reasons in the Old Testament law to use it. That's what they want to do to the woman that was caught in adultery in Jesus' ministry. They're there. They've got the rocks. They're ready to go. Jesus, what do you say about this? Need a rock? They're looking for the opportunity. That's who these people are. So they came and persuaded the people. And having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. What does it mean, supposing he had been dead? As far as they were concerned, he was dead. How would they know? Wouldn't they have to check him some way or another? They're either going to have to inflict such damage that they're going to have to say, nobody could live through that, or somebody's checking him to see. Otherwise, how would they suppose that he'd been dead? If he's just lying there on the ground, nobody's going to suppose he's doing anything except maybe faking, playing possum. So what do they do? They hit him again. They kick him again. Something. They're making sure. So don't let the supposing he'd been dead thrown you throw you. It's talking about supposing from God's standpoint. Because he wasn't really dead. Or at least death was not the end result. I personally believe he died and came back. But you decide for yourself. So they drew him out of the city, stoned him, supposing he had left him, supposing he had been dead. Howbeit, notice verse 20, howbeit as the disciples stood round about him. Most people think they're praying. The Bible does not say they prayed one word. Howbeit as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas and Derby. And when he had preached the gospel to that city and taught many, they returned again to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch and said, I'm back. Now, folks, we can attach this to any way we want to. We can say this was a miracle of God, but you can't say it happened as a result of the disciples praying. Because the Bible doesn't tell us that. You've got to add to the scripture to say that they prayed him back, into, prayed him back to life. Bible doesn't tell us. What does this tell me? It tells me that Paul is operating on Luke 10, 19. Jesus said when his earthly ministry, he said, no man can take my life from me, but I lay it down, and if I lay it down, I can take it back up again. He said, nobody can take my life. 
Why? Because he had authority. He had a job to finish and he's not going anywhere until the job's done. Isn't that the same thing Jesus said we had in us? Isn't that what Jesus came to give us? Paul's operating exactly the same way. This is his first missionary journey. He's not done. I wonder if that contributed to Paul's um, statements to the Philippians and also to Timothy. I haven't chosen yet. I haven't made my decision. Turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 11. Let me show you something else. The Bible makes some interesting statements about those who, who choose to go, those that we know of as martyrs. The book of Acts tells us about the story of Stephen. Uh, what is it, chapter 5, I guess it is, where it tells us about Stephen that was uh, uh, a miracle worker, and he was apparently a, a very gifted speaker as well because the people couldn't resist the things that he said. In other words, they couldn't debate with him. And so he began to, to speak certain things about Jesus and the Jews, good old Jews. Here they come again. And they start stoning Stephen. And the Bible says about Stephen, it says he looked up and saw the Son of Man standing on the right hand of the Father. And said so. He said, I see Jesus standing on the right hand of God the Father. Now doesn't the Bible tell us that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father? What's he doing standing up? If he's seeing into heaven into the normal course of operations. And why is Jesus standing? Then it says, Stephen prayed and said, Lord, let not this charge be laid to them. In other words, he prayed just about what Jesus did on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then he said, receive my spirit. And then the Bible says something very, very interesting. It says, Stephen fell asleep in the Lord. It says he fell asleep. It does not say they killed him. It says he fell asleep. Now, you may think I'm just, just splitting hairs over words and falling asleep means that he died. Okay, whatever. Think what you want. But the fact that the Bible, the Holy Spirit, used some different terminology. When clearly the Bible speaks of death, Paul didn't have any problem saying, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. He didn't have any problem using the word die. He didn't have any problem using the word death. Talking about physical death, he didn't have any problem with that. It says to me that there's some reason the Holy Ghost is showing us the different phrase or a different meaning or a different angle on the story. It says he fell asleep in the Lord. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us about the heroes of faith. Notice in verse, uh, uh, let's start in verse 32. It says, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah and of David and of Samuel and of the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms. Raw righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Some of these things we know about, they're re related in Scripture. Other things we don't know about. Stories that we don't have record of. They quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to the flight the armies of the aliens. Verse 35, women received their dead, raised to life again. Notice the next, the next one it mentions. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. They were tortured, in other words, martyred, not accepting deliverance. Now, 
Now, most people talk about martyrdom as people taking other people's lives and, 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 and forcibly killing them and doing terrible things and, and all this kind of stuff. People want to talk about Fox Book of Martyrs and they want to talk about the Roman Colosseum and all the things that happened. And, and certainly there were horrible things, horrible things. But most everybody wants to talk about it from a standpoint of the devil won. Here, people stopped the good work of these people's lives the martyrs' lives, by killing them and taking their lives. Yet the Bible speaks of martyrs not accepting deliverance. Read it for yourself. It says not accepting deliverance. Is it possible? Now, I don't know. Neither do you. But we've got a scriptural basis to think so. Is it possible that Stephen is looking into heaven seeing Jesus standing on the right hand of the Father, not sitting, but standing on the right hand, indicating that he's ready for action, waiting for the word from Stephen? Which way is this going to go, bud? You're going to let this happen? Are you ready to go? Are you making a choice to come to heaven? Or do you want me to stop this and keep them from taking your life? Is it possible that that's why the Bible says Jesus was seen by Stephen standing at the right hand of the Father and then he says, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Receive my spirit. Is that possibly Stephen making his decision? And then he falls asleep. Well, it certainly would fit with what Jesus said about authority, wouldn't it? Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. You decide. You decide. I get so tired of a mealy-mouthed church blaming God and the devil for everything. Jesus was not a mealy-mouthed Savior. Jesus taught authority. His doctrine was that man had authority and people were amazed. They said, we never heard anything like this. And then what would he do? He'd exercise authority over sickness. He'd cast the devil out of somebody and they'd say, wow, he's got to be telling the truth. He just did what he told us. Which is exactly the way it's supposed to work in the church. Which is exactly the way it is working in the church for those that believe and preach it. I'm tired of people saying it's not happening today. Sure, it's happening today. It just doesn't happen to those that don't believe. Which tells you where the complainers are at. Oh, there's a lot of things we could talk about. Let me show you an Old Testament example. Isaiah 38. Isaiah chapter 38. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. It's about Hezekiah. It said, in those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. That means he had a sickness that was going to take his life. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came unto him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, This sickness is of my will. I gave this to you to teach you a lesson. Have you learned yet? No, what did the Lord say? Thus saith the Lord, set your house in order, for thou shalt surely die and not live. 
Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed unto the Lord and said, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech you how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. Then came the word of the Lord to Isaiah, saying, Go and say unto Hezekiah, Thus saith the Lord, the God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer and have seen your tears. Behold, I'll add unto you another fifteen years. And I'll del- deliver unto this city, deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. Now some people look at that and say, Well, see, the Bible's full of contradictions. First God says you're going to die, and next God says you're going to live for fifteen more years. There's no contradiction. God tells him in the first case, he tells him, this is what's going to happen under the present circumstances. Hezekiah changed the circumstances. Hezekiah then exercised authority based on the word. He said, wait a minute, Lord, I've done what you told me to do. I've done right. I've done righteously. I've acted according to what your instructions were. I have done many good things to promote righteousness. And that's when the Lord says, all right, now. You're not willing to accept this sickness unto death anymore? Good. We'll give you 15 more years to go. The situation changed when Isaiah exercised authority. God didn't change anything. If Hezekiah is okay with sickness unto death, okay, the Lord's saying, here's where it's going to take you. You're about gone. Last chance. But once Hezekiah turns his face to the wall and says, no, I won't have it that way, No. This is not right. I don't deserve this. I've done right before the Lord. God says, yes. Fifteen more years for you. And I'll deliver you in the city out of the hand of the Assyrians. We're not done yet, are we, Hezekiah? But he, he could have made the choice. He's the one that decides. Now, notice this was not a decision for Israel. This was a decision for him and him as an individual. I wish I could tell you how far your authority goes. I don't know. There are some things I'm praying about that the Lord has shown me. I'll, I'll, maybe I'll speak to these things next week. There are some things that the Lord has shown me. And notice Isaiah receives the word of the Lord according to the present circumstances. I've had some things revealed to me that God's saying this is the way that it is under the present circumstances. I've made the mistake in some of those situations by thinking, okay, well, this is the way it is. We can't change it. But sometimes he's showing you so that you'll get on your horse and change it. With the word. In other words, you won't be satisfied with that. You'll say, no, I'm not going to accept that. That's not the will of God. That's not what we bargained for. Change this through prayer. And there's a lot to talk about in authority and prayer. A lot to talk about. But some of those things you don't know till you pray. There are some things that I've had a, a witness in my heart. Not a word from the Lord, but just a witness in my heart about doing something about it. And I'll think, well, do I have authority for that? I, I, I don't know. Do I? It doesn't pertain to me as an individual. Do I have authority for that? And so I spend some time praying and spending time praying. Have you noticed how the Bible says, you beloved building up yourselves on your most holy faith by praying in other tongues? You spend some time praying in other tongues and the faith that you do have, whatever the the Lord has witnessed to your heart, then that faith will be edified or built up or strengthened. And then I'll come out saying, yeah, I've got authority for that. Yeah, oh, sure. I got that. I can handle that. I've had things like that happen in a matter of seconds. Seconds. I told you about the freeway shootings that happened, what, 15, almost 20 years ago now, I guess. Came to church one morning, the Lord asked me, he said, how long are you going to put up with that? 
I'm not shooting anybody. How long am I going to put up with that? Man, I was offended. Lord, what do you mean? It's just poor little me. What do you mean? He said, didn't I send you to this place? Yeah, you did, didn't you? And I asked him a question. I said, you, Lord, you mean, Lord, I can do something about this? And it was almost angry. He said it to me again. How long are you going to put up with this? So in a matter of a few seconds, I didn't even have to pray about it. In a matter of a few seconds, we stood up in church. We were singing praise and worship at that point in time. I, we weren't anywhere near this building. We we're still in schools. So I just walked up to the little music stand that we had there. And I said, all right, folks, we're going to pray and take authority over this freeway shootings. I acted like, man, I knew all about it. On the inside, I'm, I'm trembling on the inside. Okay, we're going to take care of this. And my head's saying, what are you saying? I said, Lord, we take authority over this thing in the name of Jesus. Satan, we refuse to allow you to operate against the people of, the, of Orange County in this way any longer in Jesus' name. And folks, it stopped. It stopped. There wasn't another one. Now, you don't know if you get instant results on that because there was, you know, periods of time between one shooting and the next. But it stopped. There was not another one. Man, I like it when it happens like that. You remember the, uh, the um, well, we had several fires out here. The uh, Tribuco Canyon fire some, just a few years back. Well, this thing's coming over the hill. It's coming toward the church. No sweat. Of course, I've got authority where the church is concerned. Take authority. I refuse in the name of Jesus to allow this fire to affect our church. Now, I also prayed for the people of the church, but they have to exercise their authority too. I can't just get it on my own. So I prayed in both ways. I said, Lord, it won't affect our church and it won't affect anybody in our church. I can't tell you the number of stories that, I've, that I heard where somebody would say, this thing was coming right up to my backyard. And I walked out in my backyard and said, no, in Jesus' name, you're not coming here. And it turned around. Wind started blowing in a different direction start going the, going the other way. Well, see, I can't get that for them. I can agree with them, but I can't get that for them. I can't believe for their property being saved and them believing for something else. We can't be at cross purposes and getting the same results. Got one story from one guy. He said, yeah. He said, uh, the, the fire only got one tree in my yard. And man, I was so disappointed when I heard that. I thought, man, here's a faith failure. He said, yeah, I've been wanting that tree out of my yard for three years. <laughs> yes. I thought, well, okay. See, he's exercising his authority over everything except that tree. So it worked. But see, you can't be at cross purposes with somebody. And oh, you get people, bless their hearts, you get people that want to make changes in other people's wills where relationships are concerned. Oh, I want to pray and change my husband's will. I want to pray and change my wife's will. Folks, that doesn't work. I've been praying for my wife's will change for 30 years. <laughs> it doesn't work. Folks, think about it. If God could or would change anybody's will, number one, it would mean they don't have the authority that he said he does in his word, that, they, that the word says that we have. And secondly, if he's going to change anybody's will, wouldn't he change their will to get saved rather than just change things to make you more comfortable? Man's will is paramount in his own life. God won't and can't change somebody's will. Why? Because he set things up for man to have ultimate authority in his life. 
You see this in, in, in bless people's hearts. You see people trying to stand for their marriages to be restored. Stand year after year after year for their marriage to be restored. You can't do that. Now, that's not to say you shouldn't pray for somebody. You shouldn't pray for somebody's will or their eyes to be open so that they would change their will. That's great. Paul did that. Paul showed us how to pray that in Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 3. That's great. But you don't know. Paul said so. Paul talked about the unbelievers married to the believers. He said, how do you know if your husband or your wife will get saved? Well, if Paul's saying, how do you know, then how do we know? If he's telling us by the Holy Ghost, you can't know, then that means God himself can't change the person's will. It's up to them. So you're not going to change it through prayer. Oh, I want to change my son's will. I want to change my daughter's will. I want them to get saved. Me too. And God does too. God wants wants them to be saved and wants them to live for God more than you do. But what do you do? You pray for them to be influenced by the Holy Ghost. But it's still up to them to yield. It's still up to them to yield. It's entirely up to them. We... um, let me give you one more story and then we'll quit. <clears throat> oh, I don't know if I was to tell this. Kind of opened a can of worms with some of this. There was, uh, there's a, a family in our church that um, just had been married for a short while and uh, found out they were pregnant and then they miscarried. Now, in the miscarriage, the, the doctor found that there was a, a physical situation. And they came out of the, the, the doctor visit with the doctor saying, it's impossible for you to have children. You just can't. There's some kind of physical block. There's some kind of whatever. I don't even remember what the story was. But he said, you can't have children. And so they, of course, they were heartbroken about the, the miscarriage, as you could well understand. <clears throat> but then they said, uh, so Pastor Mike, uh, they, wanted to, uh, they wanted me to tell them if we had any contacts for for adoption agencies and stuff like that. They wanted a baby so bad, and so they just decided they were, gonna, they were going to adopt. And so I told them what we could, told them what information we had on, uh, on file and, and that type of thing. But while we were talking, man, something rose up on the inside of me. And, and it really happened when they were telling me, as soon as she said, the doctor said it's impossible for you to have children. Something rose up on the inside of me. And I don't have this in and of myself. If I did, I'd make it work for everybody in every situation. But something rose up on the inside of me, and I just said to myself, that's not the way it's going to be. That's not the way it's going to be. So we continued to talk. I didn't say anything about it. We continued to talk, told them about the, the, the steps for adoption and, and that kind of thing. And uh, before she and her husband left the office, I said this. I said, now listen. I said, I want you to know something. I am totally 100% in, in, in agreement with you about adopting a baby. And, and, and it's going to work out that God will provide you with children to adopt. But I, I pointed my finger in the, toward them and I said, but you will have children in Jesus' name. And then when I said that, I saw something. I saw them adopt a little boy, and I saw them have a little boy. And I told them. I said, here's how it's going to go. Now, as soon as I exercised the authority that I had from the witness in my heart, that's when the, the Holy Ghost manifested himself, and I had a little mini vision, word of wisdom, to see how it worked. And I said, here's how it's going to go. I said, you're going to adopt a little boy, and then you're going to have, a couple of years later, you're going to have a little boy. And that's exactly the way it worked. It's exactly the way it worked. It's exactly the way it worked. It amazes me how some people want to sit back at home and say, well, we don't need a local church. Really? Seriously? You don't need a place where the manifestation of the Holy Ghost can occur? You don't need a situation where the Holy Ghost... Listen. 
This fellow got his shoulder healed last week that I told you about earlier on. I knew exactly what I was supposed to say last Sunday morning. I knew exactly what I was supposed to say this Sunday morning. That's why I wasn't so excited when Beth was interrupting me on announcements. Sometimes, some days that works fine for me. Other days that doesn't work at all. When I know exactly what I'm supposed to do, when I know exactly the direction I'm supposed to do, leave me alone. Now, I don't tell her ahead of time, so she never knows. Because I want her to leave me alone all the time. <laughs> but when there are times where I know I'm supposed to say something, when there are times where I know I'm supposed to deal with things, stories that I'm supposed to tell, illustrations that I'm supposed to use, when I know that that's something I'm supposed to do, folks, that's all I can do. Whether somebody comes that's supposed to hear it or not, that's on them. I can't decide who's going to be here. Now, if we're just coming to hear Reader's Digest, you can do it kind of messages, then I agree. What's the point in going all the time? But if you're in a place where you're hearing from God that's going to make a difference in your life, why wouldn't you go all the time? You're going to stay home and watch Fox News instead? It's not even football season, for goodness sakes. <laughs> Folks, the church is a supernatural thing. Whether you count it as such or not, it is a supernatural thing. It's designed for you to hear supernatural words to get supernatural results. And that has very little to do with me. If you think I'm saying you need to come hear what I have to say, that's really not the point. But it is a supernatural thing. Thank God for the Holy Ghost. You may not recognize the Holy Ghost when He works, but boy, I sure do. Because I know the difference between me and Him. I know what He gives me to say that's Him. And then when I talk. Folks, you have complete authority in your life. Nobody else. Nobody else. Never can you make another excuse, well, God this or the devil that or my family this or my friends that. You're the one that has authority in your life. You and only you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you that you've given us authority in the name of Jesus over all the power of the devil. And nothing shall by any means hurt us. Father, reveal to us, show us the things that we're doing in our lives to relinquish our authority that we don't even realize that's what we're doing. Show us, Father, how we can exercise that authority through belief in your word to get the things that your Bible says belongs to us, to receive those things and to walk in those things even as your word says. Oh, thank you, Father, that salvation belongs to us. You've made us righteous You've sanctified us and separated us under your good pleasure and your will and your purpose. Thank you, Father, that you've healed us by the stripes of Jesus. No sickness, no disease can take hold of us. Even though it takes hold of the world, it cannot take hold of us because you are our shield and our exceeding great reward. Thank you, Father, that everything we put our hand to prospers. We're a supernatural family that gets supernatural results because we believe in and act on your word. Thank you, Father, for the authority that we have in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Praise the Lord. Well, God bless you. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you for being a part of our church family.